Welcome back, everyone. This week's episode is with our good friend, Carly Servi. Carly came up through the ranks of youth rodeo and is known for being a true horsewoman who can make consistent winners time and time again. Her career kicked off with her favorite gray gelding, Radio, and their wins spanned over a decade, including two trips to the NFR. Her calm, consistent, yet competitive manner has produced winner after winner, starting from the fraternity world and helping them graduate to the highest level at the pro rodeos. There's a lot to learn from Carly in this episode, and we hope you enjoy it. This week's episode is brought to you by the REM mask from Expert Equine. Not very often we see a new product that really makes a difference, like this one can in a performance horse's life. The REM mask from Expert Equine helps horses sleep under artificial lights that stay on in vet clinics and big event stall barns. For very little investment, the REM mask is easy to use and your horse will thank you. Visit xpertequine.com. If you're looking for another episode this week and aren't subscribed to The Money Barrel on Patreon, consider subscribing today. You don't want to miss our Patreon-exclusive release featuring Ivy Hurst, Kyle Jack McIntyre, and Melanie Smith on the ins and outs of buying and selling horses. This episode is live for our members and is packed with close to an hour and a half of information on a topic that many shy away from. For the cost of $5 or a single exhibition a month, you can gain access to this episode as well as extended content from our conversation with Carly and many more bonus episodes. Download the Patreon app and search The Money Barrel to join today. All right, Carly, I think it's your turn. Kayla, take it away. This is The Money Barrel. I am really excited for the podcast this morning. It's with my good friend, Carly Servi, and she told me that she wouldn't do one of these until she's won, but our good friend, Sally Conway, decided that she's won enough, so she deserves to be on the podcast, so thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, What are you doing today? It's cold here in Colorado, now that you're in Colorado. Um... Kind of fill us in on what's what's been going on and how you're starting the new year off. It's definitely cold here. I told Chase this is more snow than I've ever seen in my whole life. I feel like even when we go skiing, there's not this much snow. <laughs> but we're getting ready. The boys are hauling stock in for Denver today. And then we've got the San Antonio qualifier in Uvalde. So tucking the trailer up and trying to get ready for all of that kind of a busy morning here and you have fraternity horses rodeo horses I mean you're you're kind of busy right now I am busy what fraternity horses do you have for this year I have two I have a three-year-old that I raised he's out of my buckskin there hot in the fire that I call Loretta He's by Return of the Fire, which is the son of Mr. Jess Perry out of a really good racehorse mare, Separate Fire. She won close to 700000 on the track, which for a filly is pretty incredible. And then I have a four-year-old, well, five, I guess now, by Mr. Simon and Roll out of a flip bar mare. My good friend Barbara Burns raised him. She raised radio and Flip six and flip money, and I've got three other younger ones that she also raised. So when she calls me and tells me she thinks I have one I need, she thinks she has one I need, I don't question it. <laughs> you buy them. Yeah, so that's how he came about. Well, we're going to dive in to your program, but I guess we will start in the, the chronological order. Um, 
And tell us a little bit about your background in growing up. How did you get into horses? Well, my dad grew up on a ranch. His dad was a ranch hand. Horses were kind of a necessity. We grew up on horses. It started, we kind of rode for fun. And some of my first memories on a horse are moving cattle with my dad on a little Welsh pony. And my sisters and I would pack a lunch and take off on our horses. We had some canyons by the back of our house, and we'd ride and pretend like we were explorers and eat our lunch and horses were always a part of my life and then we kind of started going to the play days and the junior rodeos just on my dad's ranch horses that he turned into barrel horses and pole horses because he really didn't have a choice I had three sisters so he kind of got forced into it was barrel racing an instant love, or were you one of the kids that just did everything and then obviously kind of got stuck with barrel racing because that's, you know, the biggest event for girls? Yeah, that's the way it went. I actually was a lot more of a breakaway roper than I, I had nice barrel horses, but I really loved to breakaway rope, but back then they didn't have near the opportunities that they do now, and you know, after college, you had some amateur rodeos, and that was about it. So when I graduated college, I sold my breakaway horse and kind of did barrels because that was all there really was. Have you thought about getting back into breakaway with all of, <laughs> all of this stuff? Everybody asked me that, but I'm like, oh, all I need is a horse and a saddle and an arena and calves and someone willing to turn calves out for me and... <laughs> Those girls are so good now and so dedicated. I'm like, I don't think I want any part of that. Yeah, before it used to be like 2-4, 2-6, you can make a short go, and now, like, not even close. Yeah. No, thank you. Are you saying Chase wouldn't push calves and <laughs> run shoots for you, Carly? No. <laughs> no. Um, so you said that you, you know, rode your dad's ranch horses how did your parents approach the youth rodeo and, like, you know, growing up type of thing? I remember we used to go, there was three of us, so we'd take a stock trailer to the rodeos, and I'd be so embarrassed because when you're in middle school, you want to be cool and have all the coolest stuff, and my dad would always find the biggest rig there and park right beside it. And I'm like, no, please park in the back. I don't want anyone to see us. And he got a kick out of that. Um, but we, just because my dad is such a horseman, we were fortunate enough that the horses we had were nice for what they were. And my dad definitely made us put the work in. I remember one time he used to make me rope the dummy so many times a day and I had not been doing it and he wasn't saying anything and I thought sweet I guess I don't have to rope the dummy anymore and we got to the rodeo and I went to saddle my breakaway horse and he's like what are you doing I'm like I'm saddling my horse and he's like did you rope the dummy this week and I'm like no you didn't tell me I had to and He's like, well, you earned the privilege to rope on this horse, so you get to rope on your barrel horse today because if you're not going to put in the work, I'm not going to make this horse work for you. 
So I had to rope on my girl horse, which he was a ranch horse, but he'd never been behind a barrier or anything like that. So he jumped the barrier. I almost fell off. I think he ran past the calf. I was super embarrassed. So needless to say, he never had to tell me to rope the dummy again. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Like, nowadays, I feel like parents, you know, make their kids go to practice and such, and he just, he waited you to fail on your own for that one. Yeah, he used a little reverse psychology on me, and it worked. I love that, though. You earned the privilege to ride this one or rope this off this one. Like, that's a good thing for a lot of people to think about. If you don't put in the work, you don't get to ride them. Right. And I feel like you still have a little bit of that today because you will still show up to a jackpot now in a stock trailer with, like, the best horses. So Yeah, I definitely am not afraid to take a stock trailer. Now, it's funny back then because I was so embarrassed, and now I'm like, I'm not hooking up to that big living quarters. Fuel's $5 a gallon. I'll stick them all in, in the stock trailer yeah. and just go on. So, you obviously competed through high school and college. Tell us a little bit about uh, your career there before you stepped out on, you know, in the pro rodeo ranks. Um, I had, like I said, a, a good high school rodeo horse. I had a really nice breakaway horse. That was kind of more my thing. And the, I guess jumping ahead to the radio story, um, they, back in the day when they had the D&G barrel races, they had one in Amarillo, and we would go, and I'd get outrun. And my horse would make his same really nice pattern, and I'd get outrun. And my dad's a super competitive person, and he's like, I think we need a horse with run. I think if I can teach him to do what they do, but they can run faster, we'll be better off. So that's when we decided to go to the BFA sale and purchase radio. And that's kind of how that all came about. And how old were you when you guys got radio? I was 14. Oh, I guess I didn't realize he came into your life when you were so young. Yes. He was three. He was either two coming three or three coming four. And I was 14. So let's, I mean, jump right into it because um, obviously that was going to be a pretty big part of the podcast is telling the radio story. Um, so he came into your life, you were 14, he was young. What was he like to train in, you know, did you do the training? Did your dad? Tell us all about it. Um, well, when he was in the cell, the, way, the reason he got his name radio, he was in the same cell as FM radio. And I was obsessed with FM radio. He just, even at 14 years old, I could recognize he just had a presence about him. And he was big and gray and pretty. And he went out of the budget, obviously. <laughs> so we bought this other gray gilding. And my dad said, I bought AM radio. <laughs> so we called him radio. From, he was AM radio. That's awesome. Um, he was, they had started him, Barbara Burns raising her husband, Kenneth, broke him, had about 30 days on him, and then my dad took him over and kind of patterned him. He was loping the pattern and then stuck me on him and 
kind of took him to exhibition and then started entering him as a four-year-old and he just immediately won from day one he won and we were so dumb to the industry we didn't do futurities or know anything about futurities and my friend Dion Vizi said y'all should really take him to the BFA and we're like what and I mean, we knew sort of what the BFA was because we bought him out of that sale, but we had no intentions of doing any of that. It was too late to enter, but she had a horse entered, and we had to transfer him into her name for me to run him in her spot. And for a long time, I never transferred him back. And she'd always say, will you please transfer your horse? People won't stop calling me trying to buy him. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) So that was kind of a funny story. But my dad always says he was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me because he kind of made me think for a minute that training barrel horses was really easy. But I've since been trained to not believe that. (laughs) He spoiled you right off the get-go. Yes. So when you started rodeoing, well, we can't skip it. Tell us about like his international finals win and kind of when you realize like maybe rodeo is going to be a big part of his career. So I kind of started seasoning at the high school rodeos because again, barrel racing to me was kind of more like all around points. You know, if I could place and get some points for the all around that was good and he just started winning and uh one time there was a jackpot in canadian texas and for whatever reason jill moody was there on dolly and radio won that jackpot and everyone's like can you believe what you just did and i really didn't even know back then what a big deal that was but i made the decision at the state high school finals to run him in the first round. They ran the first round in a covered pin on a standard pattern. So it was kind of like a slack and he won that round. And then for the second round, you go in the Coliseum where it's a lot louder and busy and everyone tried to convince me to get on my old horse for the second round, but I wasn't having any of it. And he ran and he looked up at the third girl and jumped pretty far out to the right just enough to make us too slow to make the short rounds but right after that was the IFYR in Shawnee and I ran him there and he broke the arena record and won the average there so that's kind of when I was like okay he might be something and he was only five at this point so like I was 16 and he was five do you look back and, like, think about how, you like, you probably thought he was good, but had truly no idea, like, what you had when you were 16? Yes. Ignorance is really bliss. I look back now and I think, oh, if I could have him as a four-year-old now. Right. Well, you would probably be, like, bubble-wrapped and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, back then he still rode around in a half-top trailer. It's just, that's, it's funny looking back and being like, gosh, I didn't even know what I had. Yeah. No, no idea. He definitely made a barrel racer out of me. 
Did you have anything else running with him at that time? Or did he kind of morph into your number one and like that's when barrel racing really became a priority? Yeah, my other high school horse, his name was TJ. After when I kind of was running radio more, he went on with Kelly Collier and still won. I mean, he was a great horse, just maybe lacked the speed to be a really elite horse. But so when I sold him, it was radio until I was in college, maybe my second year of college. And my friend Shay Franklin called me, or Shay Hooks now, and said, there's a horse in Louisiana that I think you need. I think you're going to need a second horse with radio. And, you know, just out of the kindness of her heart, thought about me and helped me out. And I've, we went to Louisiana to try and Catherine Clary owned him and he had been had white line disease and spent over a year at the vet and she didn't really know how long of a career he would have so I got him bought really pretty cheap for what he was but I tried him and I hit all three barrels and said I'll take him um and it took me almost a year to get with him. We would either knock the first barrel out of the park or run to the fence. It was a pretty frustrating year, but I could just feel how talented this horse was. And I was just determined to figure it out. And which horse was that? That was Fashionable Boy. Oh. That, that's, I didn't train him. That was the first horse I'd ridden that I didn't train. For a long time, I thought... These girls that buy these finished horses are so lucky. I wish I could be like that. That definitely gave me a whole new respect for those girls because it's not always easy. Right? And his career, is it? it's still going. It is, yes. Jordan Geiger from up here where we're at still runs him. And she takes him to those CPRA rodeos and has done really well. He's... 20 this year. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm pretty sure we just had to outrun him like <laughs> recently. When I, when I retired radio, I tried to retire him too. And he went really downhill and got depressed and kind of stopped eating. And I thought, I don't think he wants to be done. So I scouted out a little jockey for him that he picked right back up and hasn't slowed down yet. That's so cool. I didn't know that. And I mean, I just think those stories are so valuable because I feel like so many people like expect to get on these horses and then an instant fit or, you know, don't give them the time it takes to get with them, even if things go wrong, like all the time. Like, yeah, it just takes time sometimes. And I think sometimes when people get a new one or even ride a young one, they're afraid to look stupid. And I've one thing I've never really been afraid to look stupid, I guess. So it just, I just was willing to try. I'm sure I threw a few fits along the way. Like, I'm sick of this, but we got through it. Yeah, that's, that's wild. I didn't know that. And, um, that I've decided has been my issue with Lem, even though I didn't know it was my issue, is like the, trying to look stupid, not look stupid, but like want more for her. And now I'm just like, you know what? I don't care. We're going everywhere. <laughs> we're yeah. we're going to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, just figure it out. 
my dad always said, if you ride enough of them, one's bound to embarrass you sooner or later. So you might as well get over that. Get over it. Have you ever slept with the lights on? Could you do it for several nights in a row and still perform at your very best? Have you ever wondered about your horse? Unfortunately, at most big events, the lights must stay on all night long. But there is a solution. REM Restorative Equine Mask from Expert Equine. The REM mask blocks artificial light, allowing for optimal rest and recovery. My name is Bo Whitaker. I'm a veterinarian at Brazos Valley Equine Hospital in Salado, Texas. The whole goal of the REM mask is to prevent sleep deprivation. And sleep deprivation is going to lead to significant behavioral problems in horses. There are other things as far as stress goes, uh, gastric ulcers, a lot of things that can be secondary to the stress that you, you can see from sleep deprivation. So arrive at the show prepared with the revolutionary REM Restorative Equine Mask from Expert Equine. So when you, you went to college, rodeoed in college, did you buy your permit as soon as you turned 18 and kind of test out the pro waters or how did that journey happen? No, the, I was never one that dreamed of going to the NFR or had those plans. I guess every little bell racer at one time thinks about the NFR, but that was never really my goal I was going to school at Texas Tech and I was wanting to be an occupational therapist and I was signed up for a summer program and that was kind of my goal and I had bought my card because I'd had a lot of success at the amateur rodeos and again people around me friends told me you should buy your card and I can't remember. I lived at the top of Texas, so I was a lot closer to the Prairie Circuit rodeos than the Texas rodeos. So I designated the Prairie Circuit and just through the summer entered. And the first time that I thought maybe I should pursue this a little more was Dodge City. And he did really well at Dodge City and all the big dogs, I guess you'd call them, were there. That was kind of the first time that I thought maybe I should do this more. Um, and actually that year I wanted to make the Prairie Circuit Finals. And again, back to being ignorant and dumb, I didn't realize that a co-approved rodeo like Amarillo counted for the money, but not your circuit count. So I was like second in the circuit and missed my circuit count by one. Oh, no. Because I was counting Amarillo as a rodeo. So definitely live and learn and figure it out. You know, I don't even think I knew that. That's a thing. That goes to show what (laughs) I know. Just so you know, if it's a co-approved rodeo, the money counts, but not your rodeo count. Look at you just helping us with the rule book. (laughs) For the longest time at the pro rodeos, at the amateur rodeos, you had to pay cash before you ran and so at the pro rodeos I would always pay in cash and like if I'm driving to the rodeo and don't have cash I'm thinking oh crap I gotta find an ATM and finally one of the secretaries was like 
do you not have a checkbook? And I'm like, what? And she's like, you don't have to pay me in cash every time. You. So again, definitely lived and learned that radio took care of me and I figured out a lot along the way. You live and you learn. Yeah. So what year was it that you, I guess, gave your first, you know, attempt to the NFR, if that's what you want to call it, or, you know, kind of just go harder down the road, leave the circuit, I guess we should say. So 2014, the Colliers and I are really good friends, and Kathleen Collier called me and said, Christine is riding our horse, and she's looking for someone to go with. Would you be interested? So that summer, I went with Christine, and... We went out to California to the, when are those, May, Red Bluff, all those, and I had a lot of success at those, and then I went with her over the summer through Nampa, and that, over the 4th, he was the highest money winner. He won Cody and Red Lodge, and maybe he did well at Greeley, I can't really remember, but... I won enough to get me into the buildings for the next year. And that next year, 2015, was when I made the finals the first time. He just carried on. Like, it doesn't seem what pens bother him. Like, he was just ready to go. Yeah. He was pretty good. Did you ever, like, what was the point in 2015? Um, You know, kind of tell us how that went. Any things gone wrong, things that went good, like what, and then what point of the year where you're like, holy crap, I made my first finals? Well, in 2014, I think I probably should have or could have made the finals, but I kind of got close and that started kind of becoming a reality and I almost talked myself out of it, like, oh my gosh, like someone like me can't make the NFR, kind of scared myself and backed off and stopped doing so well and at the end of that year I was like I'm not doing that again I have the horse I deserve it I'm gonna make finals and so I the next year I was just a lot more determined and a little bit less intimidated I guess and how how old was he at this point was he 12 13 I mean you had had him for a while right Yes. Oh, don't make me do math. Um, I think the, in 2016 when I made the NFR, he was 13. So maybe he was 12 at that point. Okay. What did you do to keep him running for so long? He, um... Or was he just good? A, no, he wasn't like the soundest horse he was just so tough um you know there'd be times where he was sore my vet would say I don't know and and I'd put him in the trailer for the summer without much expectations and he always that week before the fourth of July he was slow he'd be half second off and I think I don't know maybe this is it and then it's like he knew it it turned 4th of July and he just turned it on. I don't know if I changed or he changed or what, but he just never said no. He always tried. He always 
gave it his all and um I iced his legs a lot almost every time after I ran him I tried to ice his legs he had front feet trouble and um always tried he kicked the trailer terrible he bit the trailer so we've got mattresses hung up behind him because if I hobbled him it would make him sore because he'd just fight those hobbles the whole way so we finally just hung a mattress or it, it was a rope and box pad okay behind him and, and let him go to town so he couldn't tear the trailer himself up so he was the hardest part about him was keeping him sound and happy once you got on his back it was pretty easy and for a horse like that that you've been around for so long um and obviously you kind of grew up with them did you do any tuning on them or did you just ride them and let him do his job i would occasionally most of the time it was just on one barrel and it was just trotting him or loping him around it and making him just relax and keep forward motion and not get in a hurry and let him know it was okay. But when you're on the road rodeoing, a lot of the down days, you're just trying to let him relax and maybe get him out a little bit. I tried to move him around a little bit every day because he would tie up also. That was another fun thing about him. So he never really had time where I wasn't at least ponying him or trotting him around and moving him but other than that he was pretty easy and you made the finals twice on him how was your experience at the finals in Vegas you know for whatever reason that Thomas and Mac just didn't fit him and people I think people thought well he just doesn't like little indoor pins but you know, I won Nampa on him. I had a lot of success at San Antonio on him. I won second at Austin on him. So he had had success in the little pins, but for whatever reason, he, you know, he made, he ran a lot of 13 sevens, but at that point, not winning any money or I'd pull barrels over and it just wasn't that fun. I know everyone thinks making the NFR is, good no matter what but if you make the nfr you're probably a pretty competitive person so it's not fun to be out there 10 days and not winning much on top of everything else you have to do so i kind of after 2016 i told my dad i don't want to go back until i have a horse that i think can win there you know i don't need to go to vegas to hear my name called so I rodeoed on him in 2017 just enough to keep my qualifications to the big buildings. And that was kind of the end of me wanting to make the NFR on radio. You know, I've heard that from, I mean, many girls. And I even think uh, Brittany this year in her little interview with us said that, like, if your horse doesn't like it here, it's really not that much fun. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to sound ungrateful for my trip to Vegas because I'm very grateful. But like I said, the competitiveness, that doesn't go away just because you're in Las Vegas December 1st. You're still a competitive person and you still want to win. And it's a lot of money. So you want to probably win there more than, you know, anywhere else. Right. And, it, you know, in a normal year, if your horse didn't seem to like that pin, 
oh, well, water under the bridge, we'll go on to the next one. But there, you don't really have a choice. Yeah, you you have nine, eight, seven more runs to go. <laughs> right. So you retired radio. Is that when you started to focus more on the fraternity horses again? Or did you always have some colts in your trailer? Well, actually, in, in 2018, I had a horse called Flip Money that was younger that I had had just working on. And I ran him at my circuit finals, and he 40%ed my circuit finals, which then the money counted. It might still. I don't know. but And then I took him to Denver, and he won Colorado versus the world, and then he won a lot at the regular rodeo at Denver. And then I took him to San Antonio, and he won a lot there. And then... I had still gotten into Houston from the year past, and radio loved Houston, and I won third at Houston. So I kind of, I don't want to say accidentally, but kind of accidentally had a lot of money won in the winter. So I had the rodeo that summer, and I had radio. That was, the flip money horse wasn't very good outside, so I knew not to even bother with that. So I had radio, and he did well, but he just kind of had lost the step maybe from what he was. And I ended up 16th that year in 2018. And that kind of cured me of my rodeo bug. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. So that after 2018 was kind of when I was really not going to rodeo much anymore. Over it. <laughs> I'm over yeah. it. So that's when I... I might have ran radio a little bit that next summer. All these years run together, but I ended up selling the flip money horse and retired or gave boy away. And then I retired radio that year officially in 2019. Okay. And then you stepped into the fraternity side and was there a learning? I mean, you always rode Colts and I know you've trained your own, but when you stepped from really rodeoing, mainly to the fraternity world was there kind of a learning curve to you or did you is that when you had flit six well my first horse i took to the fraternities was in 2017 the hot in the fire oh yeah and it kind of was i was rodeoing and if i saw a prospect i thought i needed i would purchase them and kind of piddle with them when i was home and she was doing well at the beginning of the year, and I took her to Arizona. She had a lot of success out there, and then I I didn't get to take her to very many more because I was rodeoing. But the difference for me has been when you're intentionally trying to make a futurity horse and you have that date in your head. Before, I was just training on them, and if they were ready, great, and if not, great. But now that I'm a little bit more intentional about the futurities, I try not to focus on that date too much, but it's definitely hard to forget about. Especially when it's your main focus. Yes. That's been probably the biggest learning curve is, um, you know, knowing that they could be ready by November 15th. And it's like, oh, 
sometimes that date sneaks up on you. And how do you pick your prospects? Because as you had mentioned earlier, I mean, you're running some out of junior sires um, that are all, I mean, they've all turned out fantastic. But, you know, you had your Lake Ladies Men, Return of the Fire, you know, Mr. Cinnamon Roll obviously is proven. But, like, you're not on the Dash to Fame's Blaze and Jetalina's Goodbye Lanes all the time. So how do you pick your prospects? And when you look at a junior sire, like what makes that stand out to you? Well, a lot of that came from necessity, just not being able to afford those horses. So just trying to, like the Lakos ladies, man, she was out of radio's mother. So that was a given. Yeah. Um, but Barbara... Barbara Burns who raised her she does a lot of research on her stallions and she knew that radio's mother crossed really well on streak and six things that went back to streak and six and she'll actually go look at the stud and she's very picky so she gets credit for that I just kind of rode her coattails on that one but the return of the fire I had written and trained the hot in the fire and I loved that mare and I had a lot of success on that mare but if I could falter anywhere she was a little bit timid and kind of lacked that gritty competitiveness um she would do it because you were asking her to and she was talented but um she would just assume go lope the pattern and call it a day she didn't have that real aggressive competitiveness and I don't I don't know how to train that I think they either have that or they don't Mm -hmm. so my friend Becky Mask was running that return of the fire stud and I went to the fence to watch him and still to this day I think that might be the fastest horse I've ever seen run across the pen he's so cool oh man he just pinned his ears and it was like I mean, so assertive about it. And I thought that is what Loretta needs. And I just pulled the trigger. I didn't even think twice. I went out and looked at him. And he's very balanced and very nice. And that's how that came about. I love that because nowadays I think it's so easy. I mean, we have access to Facebook and, you know, videos like But when you actually see a stud in person and go with it, regardless of, you know, whatever, and now the incentives have changed a little bit, but, like, then you end up with some really cool horses that aren't, you know, line-bred seven times. Right. And I I booked to him, and then the next year I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't get one. It ended up being almost, like, two years before I got one. So I think the incentives when I made that decision might have just been starting to come around but I don't regret that decision at all it is unfortunate that that colt can't run out a lot of that stuff but you know I'm happy with the horse I got out of it I know one he can run at yep that's right we will be there too (laughs) you just come on over to Montrose yeah Um. which that was the only incentive Flit Six was in, and that was the only fraternity she didn't place at. So okay, well, that was a one-time <laughs> deal. That was a fluke. We need to change our luck. That was a fluke. Um, 
you know, you've you've had so much success on young horses and then rodeoing because Flit Six turned into a pretty good rodeo horse too. And I wanted to ask this question, and I probably don't know how to word it right, um, but obviously with the NFR and you know conversations about these young horses learning how to handle rodeo ground, the difference between fraternity horses, rodeo horses. Did you ever do anything to help? set them up when you transition to rodeo like what was what is that learning curve like when you take a young horse and you know try to get it it's it's rodeo legs yeah there can definitely be a learning curve a lot of it I try to put them in situations where I know the ground's gonna be good maybe slacks um but some of it is just jumping off the deep end and shooting from the hip and hoping for the best. And they figure it out. The good ones do six. Um, at the futurity, she was really like, I don't know how to say this politically correct, but balls to the wall. She didn't slow down. She just ran around every barrel as hard as she could. And she did have a little ground trouble when I first started trying to rodeo on her and, I actually changed bits. I put a little bit more bit on her than when I was running her at the Futurities because she needed me a little bit more maybe to help slow her down. And she kind of figured out herself, like, I've got to gather up a little and get my legs up under me or I'm going to slip. I was going to ask that next. Like, does it kind of depend on their style and... You know, do you see people do things that are, you know, either help them transition more or do you see some mistakes commonly made where you're like, hey, like you said, a bit change, like something to help rein them back a little bit? Right. There's definitely equipment you can utilize. If you've got a horse that's used to running on that really nice futurity ground that holds them up when they might be a little out of position, maybe a tie down or maybe when you work them you might have to change just being willing to think outside of the box and try things that you know just because it worked in the futurities doesn't mean it's going to work in these different setups the the pins are usually a lot bigger um maybe firmer ground but another thing if I have one that is maybe a little scared of the perfs. Um, I'll stand at the fence and watch the rodeo if I have time. Or a lot of places have grand entries where the contestants can ride in. And I know that some people back to looking stupid, like, oh, I don't want to ride in a grand entry. Well, if your horse needs to get in the pin and look around, do that. Do whatever your horse needs. A lot of times you can get in and before and work them some arenas leave them open definitely utilize that if your horse needs that and a lot of people pack a young one around and work them and let them kind of fill that rodeo ground before they're actually having to enter and compete I think that helps too when you do see the rodeo girls do that you know obviously those horses transition a little bit better because they've had to be in that situation Versus just, you know, the perfect ground. And I just wanted to to talk about that a little bit because, you know, obviously social media is social media. But, um, you know, people say, like, there is a difference. There is a difference between fraternity derby horses and rodeo horses because they've had to go through that learning curve. 
So like, let's figure out how to help them through that better. Right. And now when I'm in a grand entry. I'm kind of in a belief that a great horse is a great horse. Um, Radio never really got the chance to go to the Futurities, but I think he would have been a great Futurity horse. I think most of the great Futurity horses going right now, they might not ever fall into a rodeo girl's hands, but if they did, they're probably going to go win at the rodeos too. And probably despite us doing not the right things, a great horse tends to find a way to make it work. Right. Agree. And what do you do to help your horse's confidence? I mean, I get to watch you ride and compete often since we live so close together. And your horses always seem so confident and, you know, you're just quiet in your riding style and they always go in there and want to do their job. What is something that you try to do to help keep them confident, you know, through their career and training process? Oh, well, thank you. I'm sure I have some that aren't so confident. I just don't tend to take them to town as much. Um, And I have that luxury because I own them, most of them. And if I don't think they're quite ready, I don't have an owner that's telling me that they need to go. I can kind of take more time or make decisions that might help that horse that's a little bit less confident. But I guess when I'm starting them, I try as soon as I can to start putting the responsibility on them more. Like I'll I'll just put my hand down and go. And if they make a mistake, I'll just bring them right back and put them right back where they should have been instead of maybe trying to micromanage them to let them avoid a mistake you know, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make a mistake. And if you do, that's okay. We'll fix it. Because when I'm in high pressure situations, sometimes I'm not going to ride the best. So I like knowing that my horse is going to take over some of that responsibility in case I do something stupid. I I really like, I mean, that is, I feel, very valuable advice because I probably have a tendency to micromanage them way more than they need to. And that's why I get in fights with them. Um, and I'm learning. But, you know, again, I think it goes back to not being afraid to look stupid or, you know, that kind of fear of something going wrong. Like, it doesn't really matter. Let it happen. Fix it and move on. Right. And, it's, you know, sometimes when you're in competition, you have to do whatever it takes and pull some Hail Marys and maybe get in their face a little bit more than you want to. But for sure, when I'm at home or in an exhibition, I feel like a lot of times I'll watch people exhibition and they might be running across the pen and they're just holding them off and holding them off. And I think maybe if they would put their hand down and let them drop in and hit the second barrel, then fix it. But if if you're holding them off and you're getting them by it in an exhibition, probably when you go to add speed in your competition run, when you're a little bit more tense and your horse is a little bit more tense, you're probably not going to be able to sweep past that barrel. I like it. I like that. It. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, that wraps up this week. Big shout out to Carly for telling her story. 
If you are subscribed to The Money Barrel on Patreon, don't forget to check out the Buying and Selling 101 episode and let us know what you think. If you haven't subscribed to The Money Barrel on the Patreon app or patreon.com, what are you waiting for? Check it out today. There's hours of bonus content, extended episodes, and more. Check out this week's sponsor, the REM Mask from Expert Equine. Don't wait until you get to the event and wish you had a mask. Add it to your packing checklist, a staple item to have in your trailer when hauling. There are many benefits that come from a well-rested horse at an event. Go to Expert Equine's Facebook page and tell them how it helped your horse. Remember to check out and shop their website, xpertequine.com. All right, everyone, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.